All right, well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 13. Acts 13. You can find that in the Red Pew Bible on page 921. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 26. I love stories, and I will bet that you probably do too. Stories are important. Actually, I I would go so far as to say they are essential, and they're everywhere. Now, when I say the word story, the first thing that probably comes to your mind is a storybook, or maybe a tall tale. So you may be thinking I'm being a little dramatic by saying they're everywhere and they're so important. So let me explain what I mean when I say stories are everywhere and that they're essential. When I, when I say that, I'm actually I'm talking about more than just a work of literature or a book. I'm talking about the way that we actually make sense of the world around us. I'm, I'm, taking, I'm talking about the way that when we come home from school or when we come home from our job and we tell our families about what happened when we were out, we tell them a story. I'm talking about the way that the news describes for us what happened yesterday and why we actually need to know about it. I'm talking about the way that historians uh, look at things that happened in the past and then weave them together as an explanation to help us understand where we've been and where we're headed. I'm talking about, about the way that math and science take raw data and discoveries and then represent them to us so that we can do things like launch a rocket to space. That's, that's what I mean when I say that stories are essential and that they're everywhere. It's where facts become relevant to daily life and to our daily decisions. As stories are really, I think they're written into the very essence of what it means to be human. We make sense of the world around us through them. We are moved and compelled by them. And I think that the reason that we find stories so compelling is because ultimately we are all part of a story. A story that's not ultimately about us but about the God who made us. The world we live in, the world that is to come, they have a purpose, and they function according to a plan. And that purpose and that plan is to exalt the splendor of the glory and the grace of our God. Now, do you ever wonder why it is so important that we come together every Sunday, especially to hear God's word preached to us? Well, There are many reasons, but one of them, one of the most important reasons, I think, is that we come here to be exposed to to God in His Word, to be instructed according to His Word, and to grow in godliness as His Word affects us, so that we may exalt Him in the story of His salvation. In Romans chapter 15, Paul explains... For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He then goes on to pray, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's word tells the story of his glory. It helps us to understand our place in that story, and it encourages us in all hope 
to press on with endurance towards the prize that is set before us and secured for us by Jesus Christ. So if, if we are to press on in obedience to King Jesus, it is important for us to see our story within his story. And that is one of the major reasons it's so important for us to, to read and study and meditate on God's word. Not just the parts and pieces of it, but the whole counsel of it. So that we may frame our lives within the story of what he has done, what he is doing, and what he says he will do. Now, sharing the gospel is something we are called to do. I think the whole book of Acts makes that very clear. But when we think about sharing the gospel, we need to understand it's, it's not about trying to force people into living a certain way that's agreeable to us. No, sharing the gospel, though it will certainly change the way people live when God opens their eyes to the truth and when they believe it, sharing the gospel really is sharing the good news of what God has done to save sinners, such as we are, through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, and then calling people on the basis of that work to repentance and faith in Him. You might say that sharing the good news of the gospel really is helping people see themselves within the story of salvation. And it's trusting that God will work through that message to, in fact, save them, as that's proclaimed to Him. And that's exactly what we find going on here with Paul and Barnabas in the synagogue and Antioch and Pisidia. So that's what we're going to read about this morning. That's what we'll be unpacking together. So if you will, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Once again, we're in Acts chapter 13. I'll be starting in verse 13 and reading through verse 26. This is the Word of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, in, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring... God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, 
sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Praise be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Well, when we first started the book of Acts, I I made a point to say that the book of Acts is really a book of sermons. Uh, And that is where we find ourselves this morning. In this passage, Luke has recorded the sermon that Paul delivered in the synagogue that was in the city of Antioch, Pisidia. Now, this sermon consists of three parts, and it's always interesting to preach someone else's sermon, right? So, uh, in order to do full justice to everything Paul has um, has laid out here, we're really going to have to break this into its parts and pieces, and we're just going to we're going to look at it in three parts. And we're looking at the first one today. So those three parts really consist of, first, an intro to the history of the gospel, which is what we're looking at today. Then a testimony of how God had fulfilled his promises of a Savior through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we'll look at next week. And then third, an argument from the scriptures themselves, demonstrating specifically why it was necessary for Jesus to die and to rise again. So we'll look at that in two weeks. So, as I said this morning, we're going to be looking at the first part of this sermon, of, this, of, of, of Paul's sermon, which is the story of God's work leading up to Christ. Keeping Romans 15 in mind here, my prayer this morning is that the God of all encouragement will encourage you as we see he has been working in the world he created to exalt his own son as Savior and King. I really want, as we go through this, I want this to affect the way you read your Bible. I hope that as you do, that when you read what is laid out for you in the Scriptures, it will be personal to you. And that in seeing the story of God's mercy and grace and love, you will then be able to endure with all hope in the supreme inheritance that we have in Christ. So that brings us to really our main idea this morning, which is that In Christ, we have received something better than what we could possibly have expected. And what I want to show you is three things that God has given us in Christ which are better. First, we're going to see that God has given us in Christ a better inheritance. He's given us a better inheritance. Second, we're going to see that in Christ, God has given us a better king. And then third, we're going to see that God has given us a redeeming savior. So let's begin by looking at this better inheritance that we have received. Now, not, not all that long ago, a very well-known and respected pastor and teacher made a very unexpected comment in one of his sermons, one that caused a lot of controversy, and rightly so. He argued that it was time for the Christian faith and for the church to be unhitched from the Old Testament. He claimed that that is what Peter and James and Paul had done, and that Christians ought to follow their example today. His comment, it turns out, was actually based on a really disturbing view of the nature of what Scripture is. And when we examine his claim about the apostles and how they viewed the Old Testament, I think it turns out very clearly to be rather false. The faith of the apostles and the gospel they preached stands entirely on the foundation of the Old Testament. Now, in response to that that controversial statement, Dr. Al Mohler points out that Jesus himself declared that it was the Old Testament scriptures which bore witness about him. 
the pattern and the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament, Muller argues, is not rejection and repudiation, but promise and fulfillment. That, I think, is the essence of what we see in Paul's sermon here. The Old Testament never loses its relevancy for us. It is the very foundation of the hope of our faith. It is the story that makes sense of what Jesus did when he went to the cross. It explains to us what Jesus did and why it was so necessary. We can really no sooner unhitch our faith from the Old Testament as we could hope to unhitch a train car from its engine and then expect it to roll the right way down the tracks. When Paul preached Christ in the synagogue at Antioch Pisidia, he began with the law and the prophets, showing the brothers and sisters that were there that God had fulfilled his promise of old in the person and the work of Jesus. And I believe that Luke actually intends for us to understand that this is what Paul and Barnabas did in all of the synagogues that he, he that they had made their way through when they started in Cyprus and moved on through each new place. Now, Paul didn't just arrive at a new place and then start talking about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He always framed Jesus' work in the Gospels within the story of God's work of redemption, starting at the beginning. He went there to show them that God had fulfilled their hope and fulfilled his promise in a way that was greater than anyone had actually imagined. Now, when we, we let, it's been two weeks, so we had to, unfortunately, had to cancel last week with the gas leak. So I'll just remind you, when we left off last time, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark were in Paphos on the island of Cyprus, and that they, they were in the court of Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. Now, while they were there, God had shown his power in amazing ways, visiting judgment on a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, and then, and then bringing, using that as a moment to open the proconsul's eyes to faith. It was an incredible moment. The gospel was bearing fruit across the island. But Paul and Barnabas did not stay there. In verse 13, Luke tells us that Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, traveling north, until they came to the city of Perga, which is in Pamphylia. Now, those are a lot of words, a lot of cities that you're probably thinking, I have no idea where that is. Uh, basically, you have the island of Cyprus, and they're going straight north. Perga was a port city on the Mediterranean coast, and while it would have been a key place for Paul and Barnabas to do some ministry, it doesn't seem that they actually stay here very long, or at least Luke doesn't tell us that they did anything there. He doesn't record anything. He simply tells us that while they were there, John Mark left them and traveled back home to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why John Mark left Paul and Barnabas like this. Uh, all the possibilities that are put out there by the different commentators are conjecture at best. Uh, we know he was a young man, so there's a thought that maybe he got homesick, wanted to go home, wanted to go back to the familiar, uh, go back to Jerusalem. Uh, others think that he left out of protest. Maybe he thought that Paul should be giving the seat to Barnabas, and maybe Paul was kind of taken over. We really don't know, and Luke doesn't care to tell us. But what we do know from Acts 15 is that his decision to leave did not sit well with Paul. At the same time, it did not slow them down. Uh, we are told that Paul and Barnabas continued on their mission. So while he headed south, 
back home, they headed further north into the region of Galatia and a city called Antioch. Not to be confused with the, with the city Antioch that was in Syria, which is where Paul and Barnabas first started their missionary journey, where they had been ministering in the church there for several years now. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, man, Antioch is a really popular town name, uh, you'd be right. At this point in time, there were actually 16 cities across this area of the empire which were called Antioch. So to make sure we know which Antioch he's talking about, Luke calls this Antioch and Pisidia. Now, this was a really interesting, kind of eclectic city. Uh, this was an area that was very pro-Roman because it was home to quite a few retired Roman soldiers. Um, at that time, instead of a pension plan, the reward for serving your time as a Roman soldier was to get some of that land that you helped secure for the empire. And so that's what had happened here in the region of southern Galatia. As a result, this area became a melting pot of different people and different cultures and according to scholars, Antioch was the most important city of the region. So it's really no surprise to see Paul and Barnabas winding up here and, and planting roots down for just a little bit as they seek to reach this area with the good news of the gospel. Now, the population of Antioch was, was made up of a rich mixture of different people, including a significant number of Jews. And so sticking with the pattern of ministry, which we saw them have in Cyprus, Luke tells us that on the Sabbath day, Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue and they sat down. They went there to worship, but they also went there to share the gospel with the people who were gathered there. They went there to tell them the good news of how God had fulfilled their hope. And so we see that as they were sitting there, God opened up an opportunity for them to do just that. Now, uh, the, it was customary for the leaders, the, what we read as the, the rulers of the synagogue, the leaders who were in charge of the synagogue, to open the floor after they had made their way through the service to well, if there are any well-qualified visitors, sometimes they would open the floor to let them speak to the congregation. And so, uh, Paul who had been formerly trained by one of the most respected rabbis of his day and was also a Pharisee, is sitting right there. And the Pharisees had a certain way of dressing, which made them recognizable to other people. And so if Paul had been wearing his garb, which would serve a great purpose, he really would have stuck out, which makes sense why the leaders would come to him and say, hey, if you got something to, to preach to us, go ahead. So it, it's not terribly surprising that leaders would give him the floor, but we really couldn't have asked for a better opportunity for Paul to get to speak about Christ here. Now, I find it particularly interesting that these leaders spoke to Paul and Barnabas and asked them to share a word of encouragement with the people. I mean, what is the gospel if not that? What, what more could you ask to be encouraged by than to hear that God has kept his promises, that he has made a way for sinners to be redeemed from their sin and to have eternal life. There is not a more encouraging message than that. So there is just a wide open opportunity for Paul to speak. And we see he did just that. He stood up, he motioned with his hand. You can just feel the hush come over everyone. And then he shared the gospel of Jesus with them. Now I want you to pay attention to where Paul starts here. Keep in mind, he is in the synagogue, and they have just read the scriptures together. They've read from the Law and the Prophets. And now that Paul is speaking, 
whether he's speaking to he's speaking to Jews and God fearers, we, we can understand that they would have been familiar with the scriptures. In fact, it would be ringing in their minds. They have just heard it, and they had a certain grasp of God's word. So Paul is not here necessarily breaking any new ground for them as he starts to speak, but he is refreshing their memory of God's promises so that he can then present Jesus to them as the fulfillment of those promises. So there are the people in the synagogue. They, they have a certain advantage because they already believed in God. They were seeking him. They were heirs of God's covenant promises. And they were well familiar with the many ways that God had shown his power throughout histories in his dealings with their fathers. They had the law and they had the prophets which taught them to look forward to the coming of the promised Messiah. So, Paul opens his mouth to speak and we see him in his lead-in to sharing the gospel hitting some really strategic points in his sermon to prepare them for the news that he has been sent to bring them. That the long-awaited Messiah has come. Starting with the way that God first chose Israel to be his people. Now, although he doesn't mention Abraham by name, he does mention the fathers, which is shorthand for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's important because God's covenant promise to Abraham was the foundation for all of the other covenant promises that came after. God had told Abraham that he was going to bless him and that he was going to make him a blessing to all the families of the earth through a promised offspring. From there, Paul reminds us about how God took Abraham's descendants to Egypt, where they grew into a great people, even though they were also pressed into slavery by the Egyptians. From Egypt, Paul says that God led them out with an uplifted arm, with a global display of his sovereign power over the kings and the kingdoms of the earth. And then he goes on to talk about how Israel ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, where God put up with them in spite of their rebellion. And then after that 40 years, he reminds us about how God brought the nation to the land of Canaan, the land that he had originally promised to give to Abraham as part of his covenant with them and his descendants. And then he reminds us how God destroyed those enemy nations that were there in judgment of them, but also giving a great inheritance as he had promised to his people. Now, it's amazing that Paul could cover so much history really so quickly. He has covered, and you look at this, he's covered 450 years in about three sentences. And so, as we look at this, we need to recognize there's a theme to what he's pointing out to them. A theme pertaining to God keeping his covenant promises. So there's three features that stand out from what Paul chooses to cover in particular. First, notice how Paul highlights for us God's grace. Paul highlights God's grace. He says, God chose our fathers and made the people great. This, this was God's doing. It was not Abraham's. Abraham was nothing when God called him. God took what was weak and despised and made something amazing. He showed unmerited favor to Abraham and his descendants, paving a way through him for the whole world to be blessed in a way that only God could accomplish. As we, as we read what Paul is highlighting out of Israel's history, we see God's grace. We also see the people's faithlessness. 
Mentioning the generation that died in the wilderness doesn't exactly strike me as an encouraging word. Actually, it seems like everything Paul mentions here highlights the weaknesses of the nation of Israel. They did some things that were faithful. But when you look at their history, we're constantly shown faithlessness. They were on the brink of starvation when God brought them to Egypt and saved them through the hand of Joseph. While they were there, God blessed them, but then they were slaves. So God redeemed them from their slavery. And then, having redeemed them, having called them to be his own, they were rebels, despising God's good gifts, questioning him, disobeying him. Still, God did not give them up. And that brings us to the third feature we see that characterizes everything Paul highlights for us, which is God's faithfulness. God brought Israel to Canaan. He gave them the land. He overcame wicked nations which controlled it and which were stronger than Israel. He, del- he delivered on his promises, even going so far as to give them judges who were appointed to deliver them and to help them when they disobeyed him to lead them back into the path of obedience. Paul, Paul had a good reason for bringing up the land in particular here. The promised land was a land that, was, that signified God's covenant. It was part of the blessing that God had given to his people. It was special because God said he was going to make his presence dwell there in a special way with his people to make them a light to the nations, calling them, calling people from all over the world to come and to see his glory, the glory of the one true God. This was the inheritance that the Jewish people were hoping to see brought back. They wanted a Messiah who was going to restore what was taken from them by the Romans. But the land and the promise were always meant to look to something greater. A better inheritance. A better promise. One that went back all the way to the promise first given to Abraham as we see in Galatians 3.18. Peter talks about this in, in his first letter. In chapter, in, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus, we're told in Hebrews 9.15, is the mediator of a new covenant in which those who are called receive the promised eternal inheritance of redemption and restoration and a place with Christ in His heavenly kingdom. That is the inheritance of those who are in Christ. The land of Canaan looked forward to a better inheritance, a conscience that is cleansed and set free, a heart that loves God and desires Him. That is the greater inheritance, an inheritance that we know and understand better because of the type and the pattern that we see in the history of God's work of redemption. We receive that inheritance not through our own work, not through our own power, not through our bloodline, but solely on account of the righteousness of Christ. So as we look at how God brought Israel to the land, 
and we see his faithfulness in spite of their faithlessness, we get to rejoice in the way God has provided for his people an even greater inheritance. That inheritance is caught up with a greater king. That brings us to our second point this morning. In Christ, God has given us a better king. Now, if you know the history of Israel, you'll know that the years of the judges were absolutely awful. There's a pattern to the book of Judges that makes a really strong point to us about how strong sin's grip on the human heart really is. The people started out pretty good in the land, but then that generation died, and then people fell away from the Lord. And we're told constantly, over and over and over, in the book of Judges, each man did what was right in his own eyes. People forgot the Lord. They worshipped idols. They committed acts that were against God's law. In response, God would give the people up to their enemies. And then they'd remember the Lord and they'd cry out to Him for deliverance and He would deliver them because He's gracious. He would raise up a judge. And as long as that judge was alive, the, the people would do pretty well. But as soon as they died, the book of Judges tells us how the people would go back to their old ways. And over and over again, each time the author of Judges says, there was no king in Israel. Eventually, in the days of Samuel, the last judge, the people demanded to have a king. But it wasn't because they wanted to be more godly. No, they wanted to be like the nations around them. In verse 21, Paul recounts how God gave the people a king after their own liking, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, a man named Saul. Now, this is a little interesting detail here. Paul, whose Hebrew name is Saul, is actually descended from the tribe of Benjamin. And his, his Hebrew name harkens back to the days of Saul. That's, that's kind of a big deal. And although we don't, we don't really have a reason to think that he's a direct descendant, we do see a family relationship that's there. And so it's something that Paul, in this quick review of Israel's history, would bring Saul up. He could have just jumped straight to David, but he didn't. And the reason I think Paul started here with Saul was to put a special emphasis on God's good gift of a better king. Humanly speaking, Saul was everything you could have asked for in a king. He's, he's described as someone, he was, he was handsome to look at, he was tall, he stood out in a crowd. Initially, he was, he was really good. But he was not a man after God's own heart. He started out well, but soon the power went to his head. And rather than seeking after the Lord, he sought the good of his own house. He broke faith with God. He violated God's commandments. He took things into his own hands, relying on his own power. And eventually he lost the kingdom. In the end, the 40 years that Saul reigned really looked like the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. God took the kingdom away from Saul and away from his house and he gave it to one of Saul's servants, a man named David. Paul's summary is really important here because it shows us God's priority for the king of his appointment. The kind of king that God wants for his people, verse 22, is a man who is after his own heart. Paul says, And when he had removed Saul... God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. That's the kind of king God wanted for his people. 
David, for all of his failures, and he had many, was the embodiment of that king. You might actually say he was the shadow of the king that God had actually appointed for his people. In verse 23, Paul says, Of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. A king's job is to lead his people. The king God appointed was a king who did what was right in God's heart, who obeyed God and loved God and taught others to do the same. The throne of David at this point in history had been vacant and irrelevant for a really long time. When Paul came to Antioch, he was coming with good news, encouraging news that God had, in fact, exalted David's throne as he had promised by sending a son born of the line of David, but more than that, who was also God's own son. The promise God gave to David that he would have an offspring whose throne would never fade away was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul blatantly says that here. And we can see why that is important. All dominion and all authority belongs to Jesus. He is the promised offspring. He is that good king who is the shepherd of his people, who gives his life as a sacrifice for sins, defeating Satan and death and the curse of our sin. He is king, and that is good news. We can think about the, king, the kingship of Jesus kind of as an arbitrary reality when the fact is that our hope rides and rests on that fact. This is good news. God has declared it. Jesus lived his life in perfect obedience to the Father. He faced temptation, yet he did not sin. He bears with us now, even now, with mercy and love. And he tells he tells us he will come to exercise justice and to restore all things. It's in Christ we have a better king. Better than Saul, better than David, better than Solomon, the true prince of peace. That brings us to our third point. God has given us a better savior. Not only is Jesus king, he is our savior. For Paul, this was really one and the same thing. Look at verse 23. Of David's offspring, Paul says, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So Paul's purpose in starting with Abraham, making his way through Egypt, arriving at David's throne, has really been leading us up to this point. You see, as we look at the story of redemption, we see people who point us to Jesus, but who fail to measure up to that promised hope themselves. When Paul says that God brought this long-awaited Messiah King, he wants us to understand that God has brought something more than a political power to bear. He has brought us a king who delivers us from our greatest enemy, our sin. Look at verse 23. Before his coming, Paul says, John the Baptist had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, meaning I am not the Christ. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist did his ministry in the wilderness around the Jordan River 
but his message had gone out into the rest of the, of the empire. People were familiar with some of the things that had happened in Judea, especially surrounding him. John was rightly regarded by the people as a prophet, really the last of his kind. His ministry, though, was always meant to point people to a greater inheritance and a greater king who came to redeem his people from their sins. John's baptism, when we read about it, was focused on preparing the way for Jesus' arrival. He did that by calling people to repentance. But John's baptism was always looking forward to something greater, to the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. That is why John says that he was not, unwor- he was not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Jesus, the perfect Son of God alone, is able to make the sacrifice that we needed. It's through his death and through his resurrection that we are made free. We've not just received the shadow of the thing, but in Christ we have received the thing itself. In verse 26, Paul makes this appeal in the middle of his sermon, and we're going to end our study of it here. He says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those of you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. When we put the parts and the pieces of the Old Testament together with this, we're able to see the story of redemption and all the glory it was meant to be seen. This is the story of our salvation. It's the story of what God has done to bring righteousness to us, to prevail over our sin, to glorify Christ as Lord and King, and to set Him up as the hope of the nations. It's in Him that history finds its purpose. It's in Him that creation shines as it was meant to. It's in Him that we have light and life. This is our King. This is our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have we've taken a deep dive, a brief deep dive, into the work that you have accomplished through Jesus. Paul has taken us from the days of Abraham to the days of Christ, showing us, directing our eyes to our Savior King, who has given us an inheritance that is far more than we could have ever hoped or ever asked. Lord, as we consider our own sin, we consider that we do not deserve any part of you. We deserve your wrath. That's it. Your glory must be defended. Your holiness must be defended. And you are righteous and just. You do not sweep sin under the rug. You do not laugh or wink at sin because you are holy and righteous. We thank you, Father, that that you sent Jesus, your own Son, to satisfy justice on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that, that through faith in him, we can have relief, that we can have eternal life, that we can have a right heart, and for the way that you have set your spirit in us to love you and to trust you. Father, this is all you're doing. This is your story, and and we are in it. Help us to have hearts that are in awe of you. Help us to, to look at each day as an opportunity to draw attention to our great King, to rejoice and to endure 
and the knowledge of the inheritance that is ours in him to point others to this as well. Lord, help us to expend our every breath in pursuit of the glory of Christ. And Father, prepare our hearts for the day when we will be received into your glory because of what Christ has done for us. Give us hearts that beat for our King and give us hearts that trust always and forever in this this salvation. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our song of response this morning.